We learned earlier that there are two types of loans. There's an oral loan, and then there's a documented loan with a promissory note. Needless to say, the one with the promissory note is a much more powerful type loan and can be used to collect in a much more assertive way. So now he comes to say, Malve a lender comes to the court to be paid, Lehipora to collect, Bishtari has a valid promissory note. Bishtar Shabiyode with a note in his hands, It is not in the presence of the borrower. The borrower is out of town, the borrower is unavailable. The lender says, hey, look at my note, I'm here to collect, and the borrower has assets. In at all possible, the court should send a messenger to the borrower to say, hey, someone is coming trying to collect from your assets on your promissory note, why don't you come and defend yourself? Maybe it's paid, maybe you have an answer, maybe you have an argument. Shoyuchim, they send a messenger, a fax, or an email, or a Twitter, or whatever works. Better yet is Instagram. Omeidin lay, and they let him know. Listen, someone's trying to collect from your assets. It's impossible to get the message to him. Quickly, and there's a discussion, what's considered quickly, some say within 30 days, some say within one day. They say, the court says to the lender, let him take an oath, because we know that people take oaths very seriously. We assume if he takes the oath, he means it. He's being honest, and then we allow him, and we assist him to collect from the assets of the borrower. Whether real property, or movable property. And we are not suspicious that had the borrower been present in court, he would produce a receipt, saying it's paid. We have no reason to suspect that he has a receipt. Why not? Maybe he does have a receipt. Maybe the lender is a tricky fellow. Maybe he waited for the borrower to go out of town. Actually, this law is all about a rabbinic ordinance. Why? Because, as we learn many times, and we will learn many times, it is in the interest of the community that the system is healthy. We're concerned that people not take other people's monies, in this case, his friend's money, and he'll move out of town. And he'll say, hey, I'm going to be out of town. I'm not going to be available. Therefore, this will become not collectible. That's a good way to make money. You borrow money and move out of town. And what's the problem? The problem is that the door will be slammed in the faces of anyone who wants to borrow. Who's going to want to lend people money if they can just move to San Diego and you don't hear from them? Therefore, our sages legislated, if you can get them quickly, fine. If not, you pay, not in their presence, so the system should continue to function. And again, this is tricky business. On the one hand, we want the system to function, so we want it to be able to collect. On the other hand, we don't want people cheated. There are actually three proofs, three burdens of proof that one has to pass. Before the court, and then it can be paid. Not in the presence of the borrower. Proof number one. Item number one. Item number one is he has to verify and authenticate the note. Why? Because anybody could create a promissory note. Fraudulently. So there was a system in court of verifying and authenticating where the courts would research the signatures of the witnesses, would interview people, and they would stamp, and they would say verified. So number one, the note has to be verified. Maybe it's a forgery. Number two. It's upon the lender. The lender has the burden of proof to prove that the borrower is out of state, out of the area. And he's not present in this locale to defend himself. That's a burden of proof that the lender has. He has to prove that the borrower is unavailable and that he's not reachable. We said earlier, if he's local, the court has to send somebody to find him. He wants to expropriate certain properties belonging to the borrower. He has to prove that these properties belong to the borrower and they're not somebody else's. We have to make sure he's not trying to expropriate the Brooklyn Bridge from somebody named Brooklyn. Gimel 3, a lender comes to court and he brings with him security, collateral. You know, we learned earlier a system of collateral. You borrow money, the lender says you have collateral, you give him collateral. The Omar and the borrower, the lender says, <clears throat> Here, I have the collateral of my borrower. And it's been a while. And the date of return of the loan is passed. I want to sell the collateral. I want to repay my debt. So, what's the deal? Can the court authorize the sale of the collateral? Now, we learned earlier that if the collateral is something he needs, <clears throat> such as his pajamas. Not only can't he sell it, he has to bring it back to him every night. His work tools, not only can't he sell it, he has to bring it back to him every morning. But here, this is not something he needs. It's his spare laptop. 
The courts are not required to say to him, Hampton, wait, I shall be labor until the borrower comes. He can give his side of the deal, give his, his position. He doesn't have, we don't make him wait for the borrower. Why? And here comes the logic. We visited many times. This logic is called a migui. Migui means if he wanted to lie, you have a better lie. She relates to Lamer if he wanted to say, This collateral belongs to me. I bought it. Lamer, who's going to stop him from saying I bought it? If he wanted to lie, he could have said it's mine. He's an honest guy. He's telling the truth. He's saying it's collateral. Because he could have told a better lie if he wanted to lie, we believe him. That's the logic of Migo. If he wanted to lie, because he could have said a better lie. However, as a court, we give him some good advice to sell it before witnesses. In order that the borrower should clearly know how much it was sold for. Otherwise, there's going to be a dispute. Another scenario of somebody makes a loan. A lender makes a loan to a borrower using collateral. And in this case, the borrower dies, and or the lender dies, everybody's dead. So now you have the next generation coming. You have the borrower's offspring, the borrower's heir, the borrower's estate, and the lender's estate. We're not concerned who died first, borrower or lender. The point is, you have a borrower's estate and a lender's estate, a lender's estate and a borrower's estate. Being that the lender is coming with the collateral and is saying, hey, Mr. Court, I want to sell this collateral, the time is up. This is from my father's estate. And he wanted to say, the Yodi was bought. Anybody can say, he can swear, is holding a holy object like a Torah, or film and collect it. God is why you anybody else who can take an oath and collect. Now the question is, why do we make him hold a holy object, which is like a Torah oath? Why don't we just make him take a rabbinic oath, which doesn't have to hold a holy object? Why does he not swear a rabbinic oath, which is called Esses? Because the oath is not on the essence of the mashkin. The oath is about the money that he's collecting. Had his oath been about the essence of this object, you sold it to me, you gave it to me, he would just merely take a rabbinic oath, and if any would be exempt. But here, he's, the oath is on the loan. What if the scenario changes? There are witnesses who say that this is collateral, which he has, but they don't know what, when. He can only collect with an oath, stating his claim. But by Hilvain, Shamaid, being that there are no witnesses, we have a lady because Shalia was mine. Now, my lady is believed to say, Yes, Shalia, Kafka, I have against this so and so. But Shua Atzma Shalia, Nishwa, the oath itself that he would take, Im Hayu Shamaid, Shamaskin, if there would be witnesses, that it is collateral. Shane and Migri, the Potter of Shua, we've established this principle many times earlier. We never used the Migo logic. If he wanted to lie, he could have told a better lie when it comes to exempting someone from an oath. Ella, the Potter of Mimon, only exempting someone from paying money. Shalia, Zaramashkin, Achito Mashitorn, so that he doesn't give back the collateral until he states his case. Valid. Now, the plot tickets. Amalves, Chavere, Ella Mashkin. Somebody lends a borrower and takes collateral. So now the lender has the borrower's collateral. It is lost or stolen without any urgent emergency. In other words, it wasn't an armed robbery. We know that the lender who has the collateral of the borrower is like a shomer sofer, he's like a paid watchman. He's only liable for these kind of situations if it's lost or stolen with a minor theft rather than a major holdup. So in this case, he is liable because it was lost or, or, or stolen. The lender is culpable, he's liable. To make sure the honor is explained because he's like a paid watchman. So he has culpability. The lender is responsible for the collateral which he lost. So the lender, again, lends the borrower X amount of dollars, takes his laptop, loses the laptop, or it gets stolen in a petty theft. It's responsible. The Amaramal, and here comes the fun, the fun begins. The lender says, Sela, Hilvisicha Olov, I lent you a Sela. Now, just for the purposes of our understanding, these are all various currencies, various coins. A Sela is a coin that's worth four dinars. Like make believe when a dollar was a lot of money, when my mother was a kid. You have a dollar and you have four quarters. Or, you want to get it more modern, it's a hundred dollars, which contains four $25 bills, if they had $25 bills. So basically, that's the idea. Sela is a dollar, and dinar is a quarter. That doesn't mean a dollar. It could be a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars. So he says, I lent you a Sela. Naturally, the lender who lost the collateral was saying, your collateral was a shmata. It was only worth half the loan. It was worth two dinars. And remember, the loan was four dinars. The borrower says, what are you talking about? Sela, he'll be sunny. Oh, love, you lent me a Sela. The Sela, it was worth a Sela. Four dinars. It was worth the exact amount of the loan. What are you talking about? And these are obviously logical disagreements because everybody wants their own benefit. Who knows how much that laptop is worth? Only a laptop specialist, you know. 
So the lender swears to begin with. There is the oath that every watchman has to take when there's a dispute. He has to make sure that it's clear that he doesn't have it somewhere in his basement. So the lender, who is whole, who is the watchman in this case, has to take an oath that he's not hiding this object. That's number one. So we've ascertained that the lender is honest and he doesn't have the object which truly lost or stolen. Now the borrower has to swear, has to serve a law, that the value was four dinars, the equivalent of the loan. When he goes home. Next scenario. The scenario changes. The lender says, I lent you a seller, which is four dinars. It was only worth a shekel, which I believe is two dinars. And the lover says, You did lend me a seller. It was worth three dinars. Again, the lender must take a note. He doesn't have the object. Then the borrower has to swear how much it was worth. Because he claims it's worth more than the lender does. Because he admitted partially. And the difference between two and three dinners is one dinner. He has to pay him one dinner. Next case, the borrower said, Sell you lent me a sell all love on this collateral. It was worth two sellers. It was worth twice as much as the loan. And the lender says, Sell I did lend you a sell The sell was only worth a seller, the equivalent of the loan. So the borrower wants a seller back because he says his collateral was worth two. The lender has to swear that he doesn't have it. And he has to also include in his oath that the collateral was the amount of the debt. Amar Aleva, next case, the, lend, the borrower says, Sell, he'll be sunny, Olav. You lent me a seller. Ushtayim Ayyashava was worth two. Amar Aleva, the lender says, Sell, he'll be sunny, I lent you a seller. The Hamishah Dinim Ayyashava was worth five dinim, not two. Sellers, which would be eight dinim, but five dinim. Ushtayim Ayyashava, Shayim Ayyashava, again, the lender has to swear that he doesn't have it. The Yichlo, and he includes, this is called the Gilbushua, the rolling oath. Shalai Hayyashava, yes, sir. Hamishah Dinim, that in his opinion is not worth more than five, not eight, but five. The Shalom Adinah, and he pays that dinner, the difference between five and four. Sella, he'll be see Cholav. The next case, he argues and says, I lent you a Sella, which Nadine and Yishala was worth a half a Sella. And the borrower says, Any day of Dom, I'll tell you the truth, I have no idea what it was worth. Yishala Malvish and Yishala, the lender should take a note that he doesn't have it. The Kail Bishwasi includes in his oath, Shishnei Dinah and Yishala that was worth two dinars. Yishala Malvish and Yishala, and the borrower has to pay the rest of the debt. Because the borrower doesn't know. And the lender says he knows. Shall I use the day of Abadish Chayyim? Like the lender knows for sure. Then he doesn't know if he paid him or not. Sella, he'll be Sanyal Vishayim, Yishala. He lent me a seller and it was worth two. Amalvish and Yishala, and the lender says, I don't know what it was worth. Yishala Malvish and Yishala, the lender swears, Shishnei Dinah and Yishala, he doesn't have it. The Yichal included in the ocean, he doesn't know how much the value is. Yishala Chayyim worth the debt. I feel the he has no clear knowledge that it's worth any more than the debt. He put there and he goes home. Shari the chiyah because he doesn't subject himself to any obligation at all. Avli mamar amal. But if the lender said, "Ani yedei yeshayu shavu yosel achay," one thing I know for sure that the collateral was worth more than the debt. I will any yedei kamar. I'm not sure how much more. Harizim shalom kol mashat kol mashat on alevi b'leishur. Here he has to pay everything the borrower demands without an oath because he doesn't have a position. Like we learned earlier, chanishim yeshli chaviyodim chanishim yedei fifty. I owe you fifty. I'm not sure. Shemachu yeshvui. He has to take an oath and yachli shavu, but he can't take an oath by saying I'm not sure. As we will explain, it's always acceptable to cause the court to issue a ban of ostracism against anyone who makes a false claim. Halacha five. Moving right along. What if somebody makes a loan to his fellow? The couple lays him on the board and he set the time of repayment. So it's what we call a term loan. Even though a symbolic act of acquisition was not done here, but we assume that it's all in order. The lender lent the borrower money for a certain term. One cannot demand the loan back until the end of the term because that's why it's a term loan. Somebody borrows money for a year, he relies on the fact that he doesn't have to be paid for a year. Whether it is a oral loan. What is an oral loan? We learned extensively earlier with witnesses, without witnesses, but there's no promissory note. Or there is a promissory note, which is a much more powerful punch. Whether there is collateral. Or the lender or the borrower. I'm sorry. The borrower or the lender died. It makes no difference. Loans cannot be collected until the end of the term. No matter what the deal is, a term is a term. People are not expected to be able to repay a loan midterm. Now, what if a term was not specified? An unspecified loan is 30 days. A loan is not specified with term. It's a 30-day term. Bain Bishar makes no difference whether it's a documented loan, bain or an oral loan, bain al-amashkin with collateral or without collateral. What if it's not a term loan and it's not a non-term loan? What is it? It's an on-demand loan. You pay me back when I ask you for it. That's called a demand loan. Hisna, if he stipulates a condition, she by that he can demand. Because man shayit, anytime he wants to, then he can demand it anytime he wants to. Yes, on the day, any day. Shatanai moment, even on the day the loan was originated. Shatanai moment, because we learned earlier, it makes sense, it doesn't make sense. Any condition involving finances that is agreed to between two people is a valid condition. 
The guy says, lend me $100, I'll pay you on demand. Comes back to him an hour later, he says, I'm really sorry, I'm demanded. Now we get into dispute on term. The lender argues and says, Today is the day, I'm here to collect. And the borrower says, yes, originally it was, but don't you remember, you gave me an extension of 10 days. The borrower, Nishba Hesses, has to take a rabbinic oath. If there was even one witness, that today is the day, the Torah states, when there's one witness, you can't collect, but it could require an oath. So he has to take a biblical oath. Kishat Tanya is like any other litigation. One says this, five days left to the term. And the other says, I'll this 10. So this is the dispute, five and 10. When I was a kid, there was a store, five and 10. Came from this. They say to the lender, say, I'll tell you what, why don't you wait till the end of the five? Then he should swear a rabbinic oath that there's five left. Now it doesn't take to swear. What if the loan was a documented loan with a promissory note? And the borrower argued and said, You established time. And obviously the note doesn't state the term. It appears to me, says the that the borrower should take a rabbinic oath, that there was no time stipulated. I'm sorry, the lender, the creditor, the lender takes the oath and he collects the loan immediately. Now the question is, where can you collect a loan? The note or the agreement doesn't stipulate where, it stipulates when. So the Allah says here in 8, which is the closing paragraph, of chapter 13. Loans can be demanded anywhere. Unless it says differently. Because again, we talk when, we don't talk where. Case for example, what if somebody issues a loan to someone? In a city, in a settled place. And then they meet each other in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And the, the term is up. And he says, I'll take my money. Well, that's fine. He can't push him off. And say, are you kidding? We're in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Yeah, but term is term. He has to repay him any place. There's nothing stipulated about place. It doesn't say except if we're in the desert. What if the borrower initiates this act of repayment in the middle of the Mahavi Desert? The borrower comes and says, listen, I owe you $25,000 of cash. Here it is. Have a good day. The lender could say, are you crazy? You're giving me $25,000 cash? I wish I put it on my camel. If he wants to, he can take it. But if he desires, the lender could tell him, I have the right to be repaid in a settled community where they have banks and safety deposit boxes. You don't pay me in the middle of the Mahavi Desert. I issued the loan to you. I made the loan to you in a settled place. I'm entitled for you to repay it in a settled place so I can deal with it responsibly. And it remains in the responsibility of the borrower, in the domain of the borrower, actually, until he repays him in a settled place. End of chapter 13. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Ilchais, Malveh laws of lending and borrowing, Pedic Arba, also chapter 14. Aleph 1, the Rambam is going to now give us a list of a whole bunch of scenarios where the lender is holding a promissory note. Nevertheless, he can only accept or collect payment after taking a serious oath, one that resembles a Torah oath, which means holding a holy object, like a Torah or film. What are these scenarios? If somebody harms, he impairs the legal power of his promissory note. This refers to a situation where the lender has a promissory note, for example, for a thousand zoos. The borrower claims he repaid the entire debt. The lender admits to receiving partial payment, but he says there's still money owed to him. Now, the Gemarion Subas explains that we assume that a person who pays a debt is very careful, knows how much he's paid, while a person who has been paid may not have been so meticulous of the sum he was given, could be he has lent a lot of people money. Therefore, we require him to take an oath because through doing this, he impaired his note. A, through, in other words, through saying, yes, it could be he paid me, but only part of it. Another situation is when there's one witness who testifies that the note has been paid, the borrower claims that he paid the note entirely, and he has a witness to support him. The lender says, I didn't get any payment in Jewish law, we need two witnesses to establish reality. One witness requires an oath to be taken. So that's another situation. If somebody comes to be repaid and the borrower is not present, so he wants to go in and take objects or land that belongs to the borrower, again, we need an oath. If somebody wants to expropriate land from a buyer of the borrower, somebody bought land, and we know the land is leaned. So he comes and he wants to collect, expropriate the land from the buyer, he needs an oath. If somebody comes to an heir, to the child, 
Ben Kotten, Ben Gadol, whether of minority or majority age, all of the above, must be repaid only when there's an oath similar to the level of a Torah oath, holding a holy object. When such a person comes to take the oath, we tell him, when some such a person comes to collect, we tell him, first take an oath, and then you can collect what's due to you. What if the loan was a term loan for a specific term? On the day the term was up, the guy comes to collect. Here, here he can collect without an oath. We've established earlier, we safely assume people do not pay early. So we assume that if he's coming today, and today is a due date, that is due to him. But if the time passed, then he has to collect only with an oath, because it's not like today is the due date. The, pay, the time passed already, so we assume all kinds of stuff could have happened. And here we enter into a bunch of scenarios. What if the lender demands of the borrower, pay up your debt? And the borrower argues, he says, I paid. this document. I paid this promissory note, either in full and exhausting or part of it. And the holder of the note says, you're a liar. You paid back nothing. But he has a document. We say to the borrower, shall him pay him? Because the fact that he has a, a, a document puts him in a good position. What if the borrower argues and says, Let him take an oath that I didn't repay him. And then he can take it. We cause him to take an oath, but he keeps us holding a holy object. That he paid him nothing. We only paid him a limited amount. And then he can take, which means that the borrower has the right to demand that the lender take an oath. However, there is an exception to that rule. If the lender was a respected Torah scholar, we do not require him to take an oath as a token of respect for his scholarship because that would make it appear that they suspect that he's making a false claim in court. On the other hand, they don't expect expropriate the money from the borrower. If he wants to take an oath on his own, that's fine. Gimbal hates Yolof Shtarmakuyim. What if the lender comes up with a promissory note, a document that has been validated by the courts, the courts research, and ascertain that the witnesses are alive and well and honest and so on. So they validated the note. That's very nice that the court went and validated the oath. But the borrower argues and he says, what note? Shtarmazuya pool. The whole note is a forgery. You may have validated it, but it's a forgery. So it's a good forgery. I never wrote this note, I never signed this note. As we say in Yiddish, the whole story is a, is, is a novel. Or he has a, a different complaint. And we learned this in great detail earlier. His complaint is that this is an interest-bearing promissory note, which violates Torah law. Therefore, we learned earlier that the whole note becomes invalid. Or it is a promissory note which violates rabbinic law, which is called the dust of interest, secondary. Or he argued that this is a shtar amona. What is a shtar amona? We learned about this earlier. That... The document stipulates that the lender should always be believed. The lender says, I don't want to lend you money unless we write down the document that I have credibility, and you're not going to drive me crazy. That's called the Shtar Amona. Hey, Sha'omar. I'm sorry. That's not the Shtar Amona. Let me, let me backtrack. A Shtar Amona, he translates here differently. A Shtar Amona is he gives him the document, believing he would give him a loan, and the loan never materialized. So it's a good document, but without a loan. Hey, Sha'omar Kasafi, little bit of or in a similar vein, he says, I had this document written because I intended... To borrow, but I never borrowed. Clearly, shall double the bottom line is Tainta. He argues an argument. Shem hey the balashtar, balashtar bottle. That if the holder of the note would agree that his argument is true, then the whole note would be invalid. Vamal the lender Eimid b'shtore stands and argues his note is valid. Eimid says Eshaker Tain. He says all of the stories of our lies. Vamar Aleva and the borrower says Yishabali. Let the lender swear to the validity of this whole story that it's a real note and that the loan took place. Harezem Achleik is been again. This scenario brings about a dispute between scholars. Yes, Misha Eida some issue. Their ruling Shachai Balashtar Lishava can show that we make the lender holding the document take an oath, which is at the level of a Torah oath. Can me Shatan Olaf Shaproy just like the borrower would have argued that he paid. Here he argues the invalidity of the note. Rabbi Shaihiru the Rambam quoting his teachers, and usually when the Rambam refers to his teachers, he speaks of the Rimi Gash Rabbi Yosef Gash and his teacher, the Reef. He says, "My teachers rule Shulayishava Hamalve that the lender does not have to swear." Elim Torah Olaf Shaproy the borrower, the borrower would argue that he paid Shaihiru the because he consented that the document is good. The Torah and the document calls for repayment. He just argues that he paid. I will call a lot all of the above arguments. All of the arguments listed above, enumerated above, are not strong enough to invalidate a document which has been validated and stamped valid in court. 
That's what the system is for. You bring the document to court, they validate it. They research it, they investigate it, and they validate it. Comes this guy with a story. If you feel you have an argument, first take. Because that's what the law says. It's the law. Then you can go to court. Take the lender to court and sue him. You have a problem with him, you think it's a bit. That's a secondary lawsuit. And then if he confesses, he gives it back the money. If he denies it, he shall let him take the rabbinical. Says the Rambam, towards this ruling, not in my mind, leans, my opinion, leans towards this ruling, and the Shachanor brings down a similar ruling. Or, somebody produces a promissory note against this fellow, and the lender here, holding the promissory note, says, on this note, you know what I received? Gunish. Nada. I received nothing. The borrower says, I paid half. It's for $100, I paid 50 Now, this is an interesting scenario. Along come two kosher witnesses, and they testify that the whole thing was paid. So you have three opinions here. One opinion is, or, or three positions here. One position is the lender says, I got nothing. The borrower said, I paid half. The witnesses said he paid the whole thing. The borrower has to swear that he paid only half, and he has to pay the other half. Why? Because he admitted to half the, 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 the argument. He admitted to owing half of what is being demanded of him. That is a total rule. Somebody admits to half, he always has to take an oath and pay the half he admits. Now, don't argue that this would be similar to an innocent bystander who finds a lost object and then comes to return the lost object, and then there's a dispute as to how much there was. Here, the fellow is fearing the document. And therefore, the lender here can only accept and collect the half from free and clear property, not from property been sold. Because the buyers can argue and say, Listen up, there are two witnesses who said this was paid. Why should we allow our purchased property to be expropriated? The witnesses' testimony nullify the strength of this document. What if the lender produces a promissory note that he cannot authenticate in court? They went to the court, and the court says, I don't know, I can't, we can't find the witnesses or whatever. We're not sure of the handwriting. And the borrower said, listen guys, it's true, I wrote this document, it's a valid document, but I paid it. It was written with faith that he would, in fact, make the loan and he never made the loan. I intended to borrow and I never borrowed, or anything similar, being that if he wanted to say, it never happened. Why? Because the courts could not authenticate the document. And it was only authenticated, not by the court, but by his own admission. So therefore, if we believe half of what he says, we believe the other half of what he says. The Yeshava has this, he just has to take a rabbinic oath, be put he's exempt, he's excused, he doesn't have to pay, however, if the lender goes to a court, to a better court, to another court, to the same court, and he authenticates it, later, the first court couldn't authenticate it. He goes to another court, and they authenticate it. So it's a whole new ballgame, as they say, in baseball. It's like any other authenticated document. The lender produces an authenticated promissory note, and demands payment. The borrower says, this is a forgery. It was authenticated, it's a good forgery. I never wrote this, I don't know who this guy is. Or it was written with faith that he would lend, he never lends. And the borrower says, you know what? I'm going to put all my cards on the table. It's true. This authenticated document happens to be a forgery. And I'm a good forgery. I'm very good. But I'm honest. I happen to have had a real document. So I lost it. In order to strengthen my position, I created one. But it's a real loan and I had one. Now this is an interesting scenario. I would hire the guy. Even though it is the lender who broke the validity of this document... The Elo Ratsa Omar, and if he wanted to, he could say, Ain't a Muslim, it's not a forgery. Shanis Kaim, because it was authenticated. He decided to be a good guy and confess. Ain't a Gabe Beklum. Nevertheless, despite this, he is the one that invalidated it. It is invalid. We don't go with forgeries. He collects nothing with this document, because it's not a document. It's now alone without a document. The only thing we can do here is have the borrower swear a rabbinic oath and goes home. Because this document, which has been authenticated in court, is like a shard. It's nothing. It's worthless. Because it has been ascertained, it is a forgery. Forgeries, even authenticated forgeries, mean nothing to us. You have a document, a promissory note, with which a loan was taken and repaid. You can't use the same promissory note for a second loan. Why? And here the Rambam establishes in Halacha, because the obligation that was leaned on this promissory note has been forgiven, it's been paid. And right now, this promissory note is a piece of paper, it's a shard of, of it's nothing. So you can't use the same note. The commentary say even if it's, it was repaid the same day, and they want to take a second loan the same day, the date is still good. No, this note has been repaid. 
This note is a piece of paper. You cancel it. If somebody, meaning a lender, produces a validated and authenticated promissory note against this fellow, and the borrower says, this note you're producing, I paid you back. And the lender says, Cain, oh, yeah, you're right. You paid me back. You're absolutely correct. But I lent you money again. I made you a second loan. This document is worthless because the document was repaid. The loan on the document was repaid. Shenifra was repaid. And it becomes like a worthless piece of shard. The fact that there was a second loan is very nice, but it has nothing to do with this document. But if he said to him, listen, I gave you back the money because they were no good. And I wanted you to get better funds. Remember, we talked about the fact that the currency had to be full weight and good and not to to target. The currency had to have quality back then. So he says he gave you back the money because the money was not good. Here, the document is still alive and well. Because the obligation is still good because all the guy did is replace the money with good money. Not like he repaid the loan and took another loan out. He just needed different funds. He produced an authenticated document that has a loan of 100. A money is 100. 100 something. And the lender said to him, This document you're producing? I paid you in front of two witnesses. Sam and Joe. I, I went to school with them. And these two witnesses came along. And they testified. Sheproy. Then he paid him. Emes. But the witnesses, nobody made mention of a document. So the lender says, It's true, you paid in front of these witnesses. But what the witnesses are talking about is a completely different debt. You know, you had me lend you $10,000 in front of witnesses. I lent you the $10,000, you repaid it. Then you had me lend you another $10,000 on a document. And here's the document. It's a very nice story. But the fact is, the document said $10,000. We have witnesses that it's repaid. The document is gone. It lost its validity. Now, when does the above statement apply? When these witnesses are testifying, we saw him pay him $10,000 as an ROL, a repayment loan. If we saw him, if we saw him giving him money, he's giving him money. Who knows why he's giving him money? They had no idea. If it's a loan payment, maybe he's investing money with him, maybe he's entrusting money with him, maybe he's gifting him with money. All they said is we saw him giving him money, but we don't know why. If the fellow holding the document, meaning the lender says, it never happened, I never gave money, he never gave me money, it's a lie. You have witnesses who say he did, and he says no. If he could say no, he never gave me money. Again, we're not saying why. He never gave me money. That's a lie. Because we have witnesses who contradict that. The Torah places witnesses above all. So when the guy is established as a liar, because witnesses say he did give him money, or if the guy is a dishonest fellow, his document is invalid. But if the guy says no, of course he gave me money. But it was a repayment on another loan. And he said now, and now he has credibility. But he can take a oath. And take what is in the document. Because he didn't repay in front of witnesses. Because we don't know what the payment was. He could say, it was a gift. Because he could have said it was a gift. He's believed. When he says, it's a repayment of another loan. What's the difference between this scenario and the one earlier? The difference is there, they knew it was a repayment of loan. Here, they just knew it was a conveyance of money. Wait a minute. This document, you know what it represents. I purchased a steer, a cow from you, an animal. This, this buyer was a butcher. The seller was a supplier. So the supplier sold the steer to the buyer who was a butcher. And you, Mr. Supplier, came to my butcher store, and as the customers paid, you collected dollar by dollar to make your money back, to get your money back. So you got that money back. That document has been paid. You were sitting in my butcher store. So the guy holding the document says, Cain, Emmes, it's true. I collected the money for that debt with the understanding that the promissory note would apply to another debt that you owe me. So I just, it's all true. You do owe me another debt. So I just switched it to another debt. Being that he admitted that the money of the steer was this money and he was paid, but you can't just on your own switch obligations for a promissory note to an old debt. It doesn't work that way. As we say in the old country, even though there are no witnesses that it was repaid, the borrower can take a rabbinic oath and he can be paid by the seller of the steer sitting in his store and collecting dollar by dollar from customers. Was there anything similar, any other similar scenario? You can. Here comes a tricky scenario. There is a rule that says two witnesses establish fact, one witness only require an oath to be taken. What if the one witness is on a document? Is that significant or is it meaningless? We need two witnesses on a document. The lender produced a document with one witness. 
A promissory note with Lebatoran and the borrower argues it says Barati. Yes, it's a document, but it was paid. Hanezam Achuyev Shuah. The Rambam issues his halachic ruling saying a, an oath is required. However, maybe Yachol here we can't swear because you can only swear when you're addressing the issue at hand. Here we can't address the issue at hand because the document is not valid. Therefore, he has no choice but to pay. The note here explains that the Rambam states that when a defendant is required to take an oath because of the testimony of one witness, the oath he takes must contradict the testimony of the witness. In this instance, he cannot take such an oath because he admits that the promissory note was valid. Although he claims to be paid the debt, but that information cannot be included in the oath the borrower takes because that's not the issue at hand. Go on the other, what if he argued and said, you shall believe you Let the lender swear that I did not pay him. That's a good argument. Even if there was in the document two witnesses, he says, you shall believe you let him swear that I didn't pay him. Let him swear. Commissioner Biano, as we explained. This is what my teachers ruled. Again, who are the teachers of the Rambam, who he usually refers to? The Ri Migosh and his teacher, the Rif. And if somebody denies, a borrower denies an oral loan in a court, comes a single witness and testifies that the borrowing took place. Let him take a Torah oath. What if he says, So it was. I did borrow. I did repay. Or he forgave the loan. He owes me from somewhere else. All of these are situations where there is an oath required, but he can't take the oath because the oath can only contradict the demand. And he has to pay, therefore, because of a technical issue you'd base. What if the borrower argues that he repaid the promissory note? And he says, Let the lender take an oath and I'll pay him. We say to the borrower before you, Mr. Wise Guy. Make the lender take an oath, and then you'll repay him. We're not sure you have the money. We think you're hacking a China. We think you're bluffing. Because you're betting that he won't want to take an oath. So what we say to him is, Have you delivered the cash? Show me the money. Then we'll make the lender take the oath, and he'll collect. So the guy says, You know what? You got me. I have the money. Shoot me. Well, as he used to say when I was a kid in Newark, Do me something. If he has nothing, not a to pay, what's the remedy? I'm glad you asked. We haven't taken oath. Like the ordinance established by our Geonim, by our Geonim or a certain era of scholars. The guy says, listen, I swear, I have no money. First possible opportunity. As soon as I get a couple of yaster, I'll pay. And then when he gets the money, he takes an oath that he didn't pay him and he has to pay him. So we don't let the guy get away hacking a china. If somebody's holding a note, the lender is holding the note against the borrower and the note is lost. This is a problem. You don't want to lose your promissory note. You ruin your whole day. But the good news is that the witnesses are alive and well. And they live right here in uh, Pekoima. Even though an act of acquisition was made, which is very powerful. But he argues that he paid. So we have a problem. We have living witnesses. We have no document. He has to take a rabbinic oath. Our sages ruled. My teachers ruled. My teachers. Even if it was a term document, a term debt. The term did not yet come full term, which we said earlier. We can safely assume people do not pay debts early. Being that a document was issued. Being the other he doesn't have that document. And the borrower argues and he says, yes, all true, but I paid it. Now we're going to have to believe him. And Ishmael Hesse said he could take a rabbinic oath, Shakrai, that he paid him. Why? Because we truly suspect Shakrai, that he did pay him. And that's why there's no document. Because once a document is paid, it's usually torn or burned. So we kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. Furthermore, my teacher's rule, even if someone else is producing a document, this document, which means there's a third person, Mr. C, who has a document. And he doesn't have the document because the lender told him to keep it for safekeeping. He has the document, he found it. Whatever the deal is. But the borrower argues me many enough, you know why this guy has a document? Because I, the borrower, paid it and I took the document and then I dropped it in the street. I lost it after I paid it. Even though the date of the term has not yet arrived, Mishpahesh says, when you're still here, even here the borrower can take a rabbinic oath that he paid and he can be excused from paying. Because being that we know, number one, there is a document and the lender does not have it, there's no established obligation. You know, there's the famous Mishnah in the very beginning of Baba Mitzia. Two people are holding a garment. This one says, I found it. This one says, I found it. This one says, half is mine. So the rule is, the Mishnah of Baba Mitzia says, that the first one should rule that he has at least half. The, second, the first one should take a note that he has at least half. The second should take a note that he has at least half. And then they should split it. This is a similar scenario. Two people are holding a promissory note. Who are the two people? Wouldn't you guess? The lender and the borrower. The lender says, it's mine. And I took, it to get out. I took it out to get paid. And it dropped. And you grabbed it. And the borrower says, I paid. I paid. I mean, then enough. Therefore, you gave it to me. And I dropped it. Now they're fighting over it. 
mirroring the first mission of Abba The first one takes a note that he certainly swears that he's owed at least half of this promissory note. The other one takes a note saying that he owns at least half. He shall not live in that, let the borrower pay the lender half. That is if the document is a authenticatable document. It can be authenticated. It's a serious document. But if it cannot be authenticated, then it's not a. He shall not live let the borrower just take a rabbinic oath that he paid him. He shall not go home 15 to closing. Paragraph of this chapter. If somebody says to his fellow, money actually be all the I have $100 by you. And the second guy says, you know what you have by me? Not a. Marie says, I paid you. The one who is demanding the money says, he has Take a rabbinic oath that you be paid. The one from whom the demand is being made says, You want me to take an oath? You have a document. You want me to take an oath first? Then you're going to pull out the paid document, but you're going to collect. I'm going to tell him, you're right. Deliver the document. I never had a document. I once had one, but it's lost. My teacher's rules. I want you to nullify any document, any promissory note that you had before this time. Then have him take a rabbinic or have him excommunicate anybody who doesn't pay back. Go search and go find the document. End of chapter 14. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Malve, the law of lender and borrower. Chapter 15. If somebody makes a loan to his fellow with witnesses, there are witnesses. It's an oral loan with witnesses. The Omar and he said, listen, my friend, I'm making this loan to you in front of witnesses. Don't repay me without witnesses. Whether he said at the time of loan origination. He told him afterwards at a different time, later in the game. The borrower must honor the lender's request and he must only repay him in front of witnesses. Because of this condition we learned earlier, any condition in business is a condition. What if the borrower says, that's exactly what I did. I repaid it in front of witnesses. The guy says, really, where, who? I repaid you in front of Moshe and Aaron. So he says, produce the witnesses. Ah, they were across the sea. They went overseas. They moved to Pakistan. And they saw where they died. And the borrowers believed. Why? Because he did exactly, he claims he did exactly what was demanded of him. He paid him back in front of witnesses. What should he do, as the Ramam says later? Imprison the witnesses and not let them move? But his mushroom was Hesus and he takes a rabbinic oath and he is exempt from payment. So also, if the lender made all kinds of demands, he says, when you repay me, repay me in front of Torah scholar witnesses. I don't want just shoemaker witnesses. I want Torah scholar witnesses. We have a doctor here. At least one. Or, I want you to pay me before doctors. I only trust doctors. They're the only honest people in the world. And he said to him, I paid you in front of Torah scholars. I paid you in front of doctors. So he says, fine, where are the Torah scholars? Where are the doctors? He says, oh, they died. They moved overseas to Pakistan. They are believed. He's believed because he followed the instructions. At least he claimed he did. When Nishma has he takes a rabbinic oath and if there is exempt. But the plot thickens. If he says to him, I want you to repay me in front of Mr. A and Mr. B. I'll name the witnesses. The Yom and the borrower says, I paid you in front of other witnesses. Who died or went overseas? He's not believed. It's exactly this reason why he said, "I want you to repay me in front of these specified witnesses." Only repay me in front of Reuben and Shimon. Mr. A, Mr. B. You're standing with him in order that he not in order that he not give him all kinds of arguments to tell him. I paid you in front of other witnesses. They went here, they went there, they died. That's why he says, "I need to give an introduction to this long paragraph." Again, we've established that when the Rambam says, "My teachers," he means Rabbi Yosef of Gash and his teacher, the Rif. These are the two teachers that the Rambam refers to as his teachers. Now, generally speaking, when your teacher says something, or when your teacher says something, it's very hard for you to argue and say, I disagree. A student, uh, it's tough to disagree with the teacher. But here's a situation where the Rambam clearly disagrees with his teachers, and it's about this subject matter. So here, the Rambam gives a long explanation saying, where do halachic codifiers get their opinion from? Because they study the Mishnah, and they study the Talmud, and they see what opinions are issued in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. They accept these opinions, and that's how they give their codification. Says the Rambam, the reason I disagree with my teachers is because my teachers had a different version of words in the Talmud than I have. And to this day, we talk about different versions of words that crept in here and there. Nuschaot, that's what it's called, different versions. So therefore, my teachers say this and this, because that's what they read in their Talmud. But I have a better authenticated version because I did research. And therefore, I know had they seen my version, they would have agreed with me. Now let's learn. Yes, Nuschaot, there are certain versions of Talmudic teaching, Shekhaot, and in which is written. 
This specific thing is a text in Shavuos 41 A and B. Where if somebody says to his fellow, I'll take for any elevator, I'm only paying in front of witnesses. Beyond my lady, he says to Pratikha, I'm afraid you plainly, I paid you in front of this and this witness. And then moved overseas, and he's not believed. Says the Rambam, this is simply an erroneous version of Talmud. And therefore, those teachers who rule according to those according to those versions of Talmud are making a mistake because the version of Talmud is a mistake. I researched the old versions. I went to libraries. I checked. I looked. I searched on the internet. And I found out that there is a version that says And that's why I say he's believed. In Egypt, where the Rambam lived, I found an old version of Talmud, written on old parchment, as they were written some 500 years ago. And I found two versions on these old parchments. If I said, I repaid, says the borrower in front of so and so. Because of the above error that crept into some of the versions, some of these scholars ruled. The Rambam is referring to his teachers. If he said, only repay me in front of, and he gives the specified names of the witnesses. This is also a great error. The truth is, of the law, that the witnesses in front of whom he repaid the loan showed up and testified so, and is exempt. There isn't even a doubt, without a doubt. Also, this ruling is according to their book, which was written concerning the fellow who said to his fellow, the man who said to his friend, we just learned this earlier, pay me in front of Torah scholars or doctors. And he paid him in front of other witnesses. This is also a mistake in the version. And I found where it says in the old versions, Furthermore, not only does it appear from the version of the Talmud, but the Shalda saying it's logical as well. That he has to be believed. Why? What should he do? Only repay me in front of certain witnesses. And he pays it with witnesses. Should he lock up the witnesses in jail? If they did die, what should he do? Resurrect them? In your theory, this guy's going to have to keep repaying the same loan a hundred times every time the witnesses disappear or die. Suddenly you've made this a documented loan. You can't do that. You can't take from an oral loan and transform it into a documented loan. He said, don't repay me only for witnesses. Nobody ever considers doing such a thing. If he said, do not repay except in the presence of so-and-so, who he said, he is the cause of his own loss. Because he paid in front of others, and they left. But if the witnesses came and testified, there's no doubt, because they and this is what should be ruled. Okay, Gimel 3. What if the lender issues a stipulation, enters into a stipulation with the borrower, that the lender should have credibility. In other words, the borrower comes to the lender and he says, hey, lend me $100. Guys, I can't lend you nothing. You're going to come up with all kinds. He says, listen, what if we stipulate in the document that whatever you say, you will be believed? So if you, Mr. Lender, say you weren't repaid, you're going to be believed under all cases. And he's a native issue. In that case, the lender can always collect without an oath. Even though the borrower is screaming, I paid him. But that's the stipulation. Remember, we said in business, anything two people agree to is, is done. Maybe Adam Shiproi, but if he brought witnesses that he paid him, you can have all the stipulations in the world. Witnesses are witnesses. And Nicholas Kumi collects nothing. Dali, he's knowledge of Malva. Never Krishna Adam. What if the agreement between lender and borrower were that the borrower's word should be as valid as the testimony of two witnesses? Even though the lender brought witnesses that he paid him, but remember he stipulated that the borrower's word should have the power of the witnesses. And he said, the borrower could collect without an oath. Why? Nobody asked you to agree to the stipulation. Because he gave him credibility, like two witnesses. Now, before we learn further, I must clearly state that there is a rule in Torah that two witnesses are not any worse than three, or four, or a hundred. Two witnesses and a hundred witnesses are the same. Even if the borrower brought a hundred witnesses, that he repaid him, a hundred witnesses are no better than two witnesses. And he said to the lender, you will be believed like two witnesses. That's testimony. You're in a court of law. Two witnesses testify one thing, and three witnesses testify another thing, and a hundred makes no difference. It's all the same. Because in Torah law, two witnesses are like a hundred witnesses. However, sometimes it's not so simple. If he says to me, you, Mr. Lender, will have credibility with me like three witnesses. These are his words. Uh-huh. There must be something valuable to him about three witnesses. He'll be out of the that he enters into numbers. In that case, if he brings four witnesses, that he be paid him. Obviously, four are better than three because the borrower and lender it mentioned three. 
Now, the fact that there is a stipulation entered into that this particular lender will be believed not to witnesses, how could he possibly repay? And be believed that he be paid, the lender will keep popping up with this stipulation on believe like the witnesses. The answer is very simple solution. Let him tear up the document. Let him put big holes in the document and put paid. Who? The lender himself. And let him make a, uh, let him declare, let him make a declaration. I do declare that I invalidate all documents to this guy. should testify on his own, not in the presence of the borrower. that he accepted and received all loans due in front of the court. What if he was repaid? And the lender argued he was not repaid. The borrower paid, and the lender says, nope. And he has this condition of, belief, of credibility. So he paid him a second time. The fact is that he did pay him. So the borrower who paid twice can sue the lender who collected twice. If the lender confesses that he took advantage of this document, he should pay. If he denies and he says, I only collected once, let him take a rabbinic. Oh, they only paid once. Is there anything similar? Now we switch the tables, the tables turn. What if the borrower says, I want to be believed every time I say I paid? You're going to hack me a I want a stipulation of credibility. And he says, he can't use this document to collect. Not from an heir and not from a buyer. The borrower says, I admit I didn't pay. The lender cannot go collect from buyers of the borrower's property. Why? Maybe the lender and the buyer borrower are not honest. And maybe they made a behind the door deal, saying, I'll say you still only go beat up my buyers. What if the borrower argued and said, I repaid some? The lender says, Nada. He pays the little bit that he agreed he owes, and he takes a rabbinic oath. Because he trusts him. If his condition established that he would believe, be believed without a rabbinic oath, and whatever condition you establish, that's what's, be, that's what's. The fact is, I, in the closing paragraph in this chapter, she gave a belief what the lender stipulated that he could collect without oath. That works with him. But if he comes to collect from his heirs, he shall let him swear and then collect. But if he takes out a condition that he can collect even from the heir without an oath, that's the condition. Stipulations are agreed upon between two people are clear, are good. If he stipulated that he can take, he can collect from his best real estate, we learn that creditors collect from the average real estate. What, from the medio- mediocre real estate. Benunis. What if he says, I want this, I want the best, and that's what he stipulated? Benunis, he can collect from the best. Even from the heirs, all tonight, the moment kind. This is the bottom line. Any condition entered into between two people with financial, in financial agreements is sustainable. But if he's coming to collect from the buyer, uh-uh. the person cannot stipulate what his buyer should lose. He should only expropriate with an oath. Because no person can stipulate conditions which will cause a loss with someone else. Here the buyer is being hurt. End of chapter 15.